born of blood. In other words, John is actually bringing something into perspective that would have been, that would have been in a sense, earth-shaking. You can be the children of God, that is, you can be in the family of God, you can become the people of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if that is true, you're born of Him, and being born of Him does not depend on the will of man, all right? So it's not determined on your choice, but it's also not determined on who your parents are, okay? Remember the first time I evangelized my wife. I worked at the Chevron gas station in Fair Oaks, California. She was a parts girl. She was stunning. First of all, she was the only parts girl that we ever knew that had all of her teeth. (laughs) But she was absolutely stunning. She was beautiful. All of the guys would make a beeline over to her to, here, I'll pay the invoice, I'll put the gas in your truck or whatever, and I was just nice to her. And so one day we're walking, and so she she started to gravitate towards me because I was a gentleman and handsome. (laughs) And, And I said, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. My mother is a minister, and my grandfather is a minister. I said, how in the Sam Hill does that make you a Christian? (laughs) Then she says, oh yeah, well when I was 12, I saw a thief in the night and ran forward because I didn't want to be left behind. I'm like, oh okay, that's that's a better answer. Now I think both answers are actually terrible, and so does she. We hear it said, God has no grandchildren, right? John 1, 12 and 13 tells us it is not a matter of race. It's a matter of grace. It's not a matter of parentage. It is a matter of the spirit. It is not a matter of the will of man or the, or the DNA that runs through your veins. It's a matter on believing in his name. One more text, we could go on like this for a while, but let me just move on a little more quickly. Turn over to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to have to just keep this this part short, but I think that it makes the argument in one of the most powerful ways, and uh, and, and Pastor Corey made reference to this text uh, in the first hour, and let me just start in Romans 9, 3, Paul just absolutely, if, 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 these first few verses don't move your heart, then you've got a pretty cold heart. Paul says, we'll start at verse one. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, right? So no doubt who he's talking about 
who are the Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, temple service, promises, whose are the fathers or the patriarchs, and from whom is the Messiah according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so you see these magnificent privileges that Israel had. But again, I think Pastor Corey is absolutely right. The main point is, from whom is the Christ? Okay. Now verse 6 but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Okay. By the way, 9.6b is something that absolutely demands our, our understanding. Not all of Israel... So not all of those within that broader physical national covenant community are of Israel. In other words, there's a true Israel within the broader Israel. In other words, under the old covenant, the vast majority of Israelites did not actually have a heart to know God. This is Moses' point when he gets to Deuteronomy 29 and, and God says, to this point, I have not given you a heart to know me. And therefore, the call is for them what? Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, to circumcise your hearts so that you do know me. So here's this principle, you've got the physical people, and it's not that everybody in the physical people are actually the true Israel. The true Israel are those who are born of the Spirit and who have the faith of Abraham. Now, here's, here's the interesting part. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they're Abraham's seed. Did you see that? They're not all children just because they're Abraham's physical descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. Verse 8, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as seed. Romans chapter 9 verses 6 through 8 obliterates the idea that somehow covenant promise or the inheritance or grace or salvation is somehow passed down from one generation to the next. It's not the children of the flesh. So the Abrahamic covenant, which was physical and national, was also spiritual and typological. And so the church... And we said it last night, we're going to say it a little differently right now. The church is not a continuation of physical Israel. The church is a continuation of true spiritual Israel. So the new covenant, we'll talk about this tomorrow a lot, is not a continuation or a renewal of the old covenant. It is a actual new covenant in which that genealogical principle is not carried over anymore. So the new covenant community um, is really, in a sense, a continuation of the remnant, the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh. 
And so because of this, I would say it is no longer fitting nor appropriate to apply the sign of the covenant to children of the flesh simply because they are children of believers. All right? Okay, that's number one. Number two, Acts chapter 2. All right, and if you got a Bible, I, I'd, I'd love it if you'd turn there because I want you to see this with your own eyeballs. So, <clears throat> Peter's preaching on the, on the great day of Pentecost, and <clears throat> verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, so, so just notice, they hear it. What does Peter say? You need to repent, and then each one of you, presumably, who repents. Is that a safe assumption in, in, in verse 38? Each one of you who repents is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you receive the gift of the Spirit. Now verse 39 is, is, is the crux text. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now understand that Acts 2.39 is, a, is one of the pillar texts, New Testament texts, for paedobaptism. Right? And you can, you can see why, right? The promise is for you and your children. Now, the Directory for Public Worship, which is one of the documents of the Westminster Assembly, says this. God made the promise of the covenant to believers and to their offspring. In the Old Testament, he declared to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed and after thee in the generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed uh, after you. And then the, the, the directory says this, for this reason in the Old Testament, God commanded that covenant infants be given the sign of circumcision. The covenant is the same in essence in both Old and New Testaments. That's that flat line we talked about. Indeed, the grace of God for the consolation of believers is even more fully manifested in the New Testament. Thus, rather than rescinding the covenant promise, to believers and to their offspring in the New Testament, God reaffirms it when he declares the promise is unto you and to your children. Okay? So that's, that's the position. Ryan McGraw, in the little booklet I mentioned last night, brand new off the press, um, basically says that when you get to this text, okay, 
He says, Peter's sermon shows us that baptism is attached to God's promises and that these promises require repentance and faith. So far, so good. That they belong to believers and their children and they extend to those who are far off, resulting in the baptism of believing households. Okay. So, when I say that Acts 2.39 is one of the pillar texts that's used by Paedo-Baptists, then that is absolutely no exaggeration. But what I want you to do is I want you to look at the text with me. Notice, Peter says this, For the promise is for you and your children and... For all who are far off, and then notice this language, by the way, it echoes John 1.12, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So Peter's just said, repent and each of you be baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's the thing. In Acts 2.39, what is the promise? The promise is for you, your children, those who are far off. What is the promise? The promise is the Spirit. What the Pado-Baptist position has to say is that the promise ends up being the external ordinances. (laughs) Okay? The promise is for the Spirit, and it's for those who are listening for you. That promise is for their children, and that promise is for all who are far off, which would include Jews who are in the diaspora, but also Gentiles who are outside of the commonwealth of Israel. Now here's here's the thing about the text that, that absolutely should be, um, should completely undermine this idea. Um, Notice the qualifier. It's marked by this, this little, what, what, what's called a little correlative pronoun, as many as. The as many as marks out those from each category that God calls to himself. So to assume that somehow... Um, the promises for you and your children means baptism ignores, first of all, those who are far off. Okay. It also ignores the qualifier. So I, I would understand Acts 2.39 like this. The promise of the Spirit, which will bring with it the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus, it's for you. It's also for your children. It's also for all of those who are far off. In other words, we have three different categories here that the promise is for, which is another way of just saying the promise is for everybody. (laughs) And then it is that promise is for as many of you and as many of your children and as many as those who are far off whom the Lord our God calls to himself. All right, so far from being a proof text for pedo-baptism, this is actually a promise in terms of the universality of the gospel for everyone who hears. 
and everyone that God calls to himself. And you say, are you sure about that? And I'm going to say, I'm absolutely sure about that because I keep reading. (laughs) Verse 41, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So let me just say, if the Pado-Baptist perspective on Acts 2.39 is true, what would you expect Acts 2.41 to say? As many as received his word were baptized with their children. It's not what the text says. So, One of the pillar proof texts, I think, falls completely on its face. Now, what time am I supposed to be done? Because this will determine what I do from here on out. Tomorrow at (laughs) 1. Okay, then we got plenty of time. All right, that was not helpful, Rolo, but anyway. (laughs) All right, go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 4. This, again, is another... Um, common proof text that's used to support infant baptism. Noon? Okay. All right. That's good. So, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is about Abraham's justification. And in verse 10, let's back up to verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Right. So Paul's argument, <laughs> you can, so many of Paul's arguments come down to this issue of what time is it? Okay, in in terms of in terms of the, the the unfolding of redemptive history, what time is it? And so Paul's point is simply this: Abraham received the blessing of justification before he was circumcised. All right. Now, verse eleven, and and sometimes you got to follow this because it doesn't seem very obvious to us. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So, Abraham received circumcision as a sign of the covenant and as a seal of righteousness. So the argument goes like this. Since Abraham was given the sign and seal of the covenant... And it was given also to his children, 
So new covenant believers should give the sign and seal, now in baptism, to their children. Now, I don't want to sound too cheeky, but I want to just say that you could, you could read that text from dusk till dawn. And that's not the conclusion that you're going to come up with. All right? I, I, I mean, I honestly don't see it. But here's, here's, here's how we would respond. So you understand what they're saying. Circumcision was the, was the sign of the covenant, and it was a seal of righteousness. Abraham receives that because he's already been declared righteous, but his children receive it because it is a seal of their future righteousness. Okay? Now, that is only true if the genealogical principle is still the governing principle of the new covenant. If it's, if it's no longer the governing principle, then the application regarding the children of the flesh no longer applies. And so the context of Romans 4 is to make the point that Abraham is the father, not of the children of the flesh, but the father of those who believe. Right? So in other words, the very idea of the timing of Abraham's circums- uh, justification in relation to his circumcision, what Paul's conclusion is, is that he's the father of both uncircumcised and circumcised who have his faith. To deduce from this somehow that you administer the sign and seal of the covenant. So understand, that's, they, put, they put their entire weight on that expression, the sign and seal of the covenant. Right? But to do that actually then misses the significance of the whole thrust of the passage. So verse 16 For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so what is Paul underscoring here? Paul is underscoring that in in one sense, Abraham's circumcision is not what was significant in God's dealing with him. It was God's justifying grace that was significant to him. And the fact that he responds in faith means that for both uncircumcised and circumcised, he is the father of everyone who believes. I would actually say that undermines the genealogical principle that sign and seal is resting all of its weight on in 4.11. All right. So, we good so far, everybody? All right. Okay, number four. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a different argument, but it's something that I think needs to be brought into the discussion in light of the first three things. 
So if baptism replaced circumcision, the Jerusalem Council and the letter to the Galatians would have contained much different arguments. Okay? So, you guys remember the Council of Jerusalem, right? So, Acts chapter 15. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. What do we call these guys? Judaizers, right? Now, um, do they deny that Jesus is the Messiah? No. They simply say, if you want to know Jesus is Messiah... You not only need to have faith, but you also need to be Jewish. <laughs> At least a proselyte. Which means that you need to receive circumcision. So if you don't receive circumcision, uh, 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 according to Moses, then you can't be saved. By the way, this is always the danger of adding anything to the gospel, right? Right? So, so this goes all the way back to the earliest time in in the apostolic church. You know what's funny to me? People will say, oh, I'd love to get back to the, to the book of Acts. What glory that would be. Signs, miracles, wonders, and then like, yeah, and then liars dropping dead in church. And um, <laughs> I mean, let's face it, there are some advantages of not living in the time of the book of Acts, right? And so, so for this like apostolic golden age, you had people that were going around during the time of the apostles saying, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. And so the Jerusalem council gets together, they hear testimony, there's this great dissension, there's all this debate, and then you get to verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples, that is Gentile disciples, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. Which, by the way, is, is indicating what? They don't need to be circumcised. They're saved by grace in the same way that we've been saved by grace. Now look down at verse 19. This is James. He says, Therefore it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled by blood. And for Moses, from ancient generations in every city, um, those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And so this decision seems good. They send out a letter to all of the churches. But, but here's, here's sort of the interesting thing. The argument starts with, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. The rebuttal is, Gentiles are saved by grace through the Lord Jesus, just like we are. And then James' conclusion is, we should not trouble the Gentiles, but we should actually just tell them, and he gives just a few things. Notice circumcision is not among them, right? Certain things that relate to the moral law and then not causing unnecessary offense to Jewish people, all right? So, what do you make of that? 
Well, here's, here's what I make of that. If it would have been clearly understood that baptism had just replaced circumcision, the Jerusalem council would have gone something like this. There are these guys that came up from Judea. They said, unless uh, you're circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Everybody at the Jerusalem council started laughing hilariously. What are you talking about? Don't you realize they've all been baptized? They don't need to be circumcised. Baptism isn't even brought into the, into the discussion. If baptism had replaced circumcision, then the whole issue of you need to be circumcised in order to be saved becomes a moot point because baptism has replaced circumcision. And yet that's not even, the, the answer of the council is not they've been baptized so they don't need to be circumcised. The answer of the council is they're sa- the uncircumcised are saved by grace in the Lord Jesus just like we are. By the way, one of the most fundamental issues regarding the, um, the apostolic church is how do the Gentiles fit? Your hardline Jewish believers, typically from Jerusalem or Judea, were basically saying, in order for you to be a Christian, you need to be a Jew. Right? And the consistent testimony of the book of Acts and all of the epistles is that if you're a Gentile and you become a Christian, you don't need to become a Jew because you're a Christian. Okay? This seems, this seems elementary to us, doesn't it? Turn over to Galatians real, real quickly. I hope you don't mind getting some exercise for your fingers. Galatians chapter 5. So what's, what's, the, what's the issue behind Paul's letter to the Galatians? Okay. Okay, different gospel, justification by faith. What, 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 what is the presenting problem in the book of Galatians that makes these issues so relevant? It's the Judaizers that are coming along. Now, my, my, my understanding is that the argument of the Judaizers goes something like this. Okay, the fact that you Gentiles are believing in Jesus as Messiah, we're, we're, we're really happy about that. But in order for you to be real sons of Abraham, okay, in order for you to be complete, you need to be circumcised and observe dietary laws. Okay. Now, this is why Paul spends so much time in Galatians 3 talking about what constitutes real sons of Abraham. Okay. What completes you as a son of Abraham is not circumcision, but it is faith and the Spirit through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, all right? Now, look at chapter 5, verse 2. Paul says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if 
you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he's under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed, which is a play on words. You've been cut off from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are awaiting the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Now, my point here is that if baptism had simply replaced circumcision, Paul's argument to the Galatians would have been different. Right? So here, what he says is, oh, so you want to follow this teaching that says in order to be complete, you need to be circumcised. If baptism had replaced circumcision, Paul could have simply said, that's nonsense, you've been baptized. Right? That's not a stretch. If baptism is the replacement of circumcision, Paul's argument sounds different. But here's what he turns around and says, if you actually receive circumcision, Christ becomes no benefit to you. You've been severed from Christ. And then he says, in Christ Jesus, circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter, not because baptism has replaced it, but because it's now about faith working through love. Okay. Wow! So, just one more, uh, 6.15. Neither circumcision is anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What's a new creation? So here's, let me just, let me just do a little eschatology with you real quick. Are you, you, you good with this? So, if any man is in Christ, he is new creation. Old things passed away, behold, all things are becoming new. Now, we normally think about that in terms of what God does in us, making us new. And that's true. It's totally true. Some of you have been, you, you lived a life of dissipation and rebellion, and, 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 and you were a prodigal, and God got a hold of your heart, and he made something new, and he changed you, right? So there's a sense that new creation, yeah, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. But Paul has something way, way bigger in mind when he says, 2 Corinthians 5.17, or Galatians 6.15, what matters is a new creation. What he's saying is that, so the new creation are we actually in the new creation right now? I can tell you the traffic in Las Vegas wouldn't be like it is if we were in the new creation. All right? In fact, Las Vegas might not even be here in the new creation. All right? <laughs> new creation is future. You've got this age, you've got the age to come. What Paul says is that the future has invaded the present so that as a person who is in Christ, you are a person of the future new creation right now. Okay? 
Is there tension for us being a part of this age and also the age to come? The answer is yes, all right? But here's the thing. How does the new creation happen? The new creation happens through Jesus Christ by his spirit by bringing the glories of the age to come into this present age. And so when Paul says circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything, what he's saying is that age where it mattered has passed. It's irrelevant now. What matters is that the Spirit, through union in Christ, has made you a future person right now. A part of the new creation right now. And again, every time Paul brings up circumcision, he brings it up in a way and never argues it's been replaced. He argues it's completely irrelevant. Now, let me just say one thing about Pastor Corey's uh, wonderful message in the first hour. Um, One of the most amazing passages on the relationship of Israel and the church is found in Galatians 4, 21 to 31. What Paul says in that text, relevant to what we're talking about, but let me just, let me just say, just, just do this super quickly. So Paul says, tell me, verse 21, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, who was who? Hagar. Okay, so think over in this category, Hagar. Okay. And then, one by the free woman. Okay. Hagar, Sarah. Got it? But the son of the bondwoman, son of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. Son of the free woman through the promise. Okay? So you've got Hagar, Ishmael, flesh, Sarah, Isaac, promise okay this is allegorically speaking for these women are two covenants one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves she is Hagar now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia corresponding to the present Jerusalem This language is incendiary, explosive language. You have to understand. Keep the category. Hagar, Ishmael, flesh, Sinai, Jerusalem. Yikes! This this would cause tons and tons of dispensational literature to go right up in flames. She, Hagar, Present Jerusalem is in slavery with her children. Who are her children? Ishmaelites. Well, not according to the allegory. They are Jewish people. (laughs) Paul, you're going to get killed talking like this. The children of Hagar, Ishmaelites, correspond to present Jerusalem? Correspond to those who are trying to keep the law? 
You're out of your gourd. Now, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above. Okay, so remember, we've got the two categories. So over here, we got Sarah, promise, right? Isaac. Now, Jerusalem above, that is not the here Jerusalem, but the heavenly Jerusalem, all right? She's our mother. For it's written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, You who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a husband. So understand this. This is Isaac's birth from Sarah was supernatural. She was barren. It was miraculous. Ishmael's birth was simply a work of the flesh. Okay? And so, now Paul says, so you've got Sarah, Isaac, promise. Up Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem, our mother. <laughs> and you, brethren, Galatians are predominantly what? Gentiles. You, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. In other words, you don't belong over here in the Hagar category. You belong in the Sarah category. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so it is also now. Do you, do you see the implication of what Paul just said there? Like, do, here's, here's one of the great principles of, of reading your Bible. Pay attention. <laughs> pay attention. Just l pay attention to the details. So Paul is equating the Jewish contingent who's trying to enforce circumcision he makes the analogy that's Ishmael harassing Isaac. By the way, this passage is a great reversal. Okay? What does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. Wow. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. So... What that means, relevant to what Corey said first hour, right? Right? Who, who are the children? They're the supernatural children of the promise that are brought, to be, brought into existence by the Spirit. Okay? Notice, those who want to impose an external right on the people of God are Ishmaelites who harass the true people of the promise. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that Presbyterians are Ishmaelites. Don't say, don't say that. Okay? So, let me just remind you what we were talking about. If baptism replaced circumcision, the whole argument of Galatians would be totally different. All right? Number five. This is one of my favorites. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7. 
And we've got to start reading at verse 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. That is, Paul does not have any direct statement from Jesus. He's not saying this isn't inspired. He's just saying, this is what I'm saying to you as an apostle. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. This text, believe it or not, is used to justify infant baptism. Anybody want to venture a guess why? <laughs> There's no water in the text. There's not even just enough to sprinkle. There's no water at all. Why is 1 Corinthians 7.14 a text that's used to justify infant baptism? Now, if you're sitting there struggling to try to figure out why, then I'm right there with you. The argument basically goes like this. The children of even one believing parent are sanctified. Okay? And it is going to be the sign and seal of the covenant that demonstrates they're sanctified. What is sanctified here? Is sanctified, we'll do it this way, process of elimination. Is sanctified the subsequent work of justification that's accomplished by the indwelling Holy Spirit for those who are saved? Is that what Paul means by sanctified here? Well, it can't. Because what would that mean then? If that's, if that's what sanctified meant here, what would that mean? The unbelieving husband's also saved and sanctified. Even if he doesn't believe in Jesus. Okay? And that's just simply not true, right? So all of a sudden, sanctified becomes like the big word. What does it mean to be sanctified? What's, what's, the, what's the fundamental meaning of the word sanctified? Set apart. Okay? Set apart. Now, how does a believing spouse sanctify an unbelieving spouse? Well, it's not, it's not that hard. If an unbeliever is married to a believer, that unbeliever is actually in a privileged position 
to be married to someone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, has the presence of God's grace and spirit in their life, and it is that influence of the believing spouse that in a, in, in a sense sets apart that unbelieving spouse because of the influence of the gospel in their life. By the way, if that's not what sanctification means in this text, then, then we are in, in, in serious trouble, right? How does a believing parent sanctify their children? In the same way. Right? Far from being warrant to baptize your children, there's something that's far more profound that Paul is saying here. Paul's not simply saying, your kids are sanctified, so give them the, 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 the sign and seal of the covenant. Because if that's what Paul was saying, then who else should get the sign and seal of the covenant? The unbelieving spouse. Oh, that would be an interesting family dynamic. Honey, I want you to go to church with me today. Why? Well, we're doing something special for spouses. Really? Yeah, you'll get free chocolate. Okay, I'm in. You ever seen Nacho Libre? That classic, classic movie. We, we watch it. It's like, it's like a religion in our house. We watch it every year. And um, the, uh, the luchador says to Stephen, do you know why we are not winning? It's because you have not been baptized. Why have you not been baptized? I believe in science. You remember this scene? Yeah. It's, it's right up there with Gary Cooper, high noon, right? <laughs> and so what happens is Ignacio takes the bucket, right? Sneaks up behind Stephen, grabs him by the back of the head, smashes his head into the water and baptizes him. All right? So could you imagine? We're going to have a special 1 Corinthians 7:14 Sunday. <laughs> and the husband comes in and there's some guy in a fire hose. <laughs> right? It's not what the text means. I want to say that what the text means is far more encouraging than that your children get the sign of the covenant. What the text means is that an unbelieving spouse and your children are under the influence of the gospel in a way that sets them apart and gives them a privilege. Okay. You do know being raised in a Christian home or even being raised just by one Christian parent is a tremendous privilege because of the presence of the grace of the gospel in that believing spouse's life. So, they're holy. That is, they're sanctified in the same way that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified. Okay, another one, and we'll, we'll, we'll pick up a little bit of speed here. Um, have you preached through Colossians? Huh? On Wednesdays? Okay. So, we'll do this quicker because I'm sure that it was... It was dealt with. So th this is, by the way, this is one of the favorite texts of Paedo-Baptists. Colossians chapter 2. You ready? Verse 11. 
in him. You were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And the Presbyterian brother says, Aha, see, it's right there. Did you, did you see it? Did you see it? Circumcised and then buried with him in baptism. So obviously, if you have baptism and circumcision in the same text, our conclusion is, is, is airtight. And I want to say, is it really? Take a look at what it says. In him, you have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So what does that mean? By the way, that phrase, made without hands, means that it is whose work? It's God's work. So you've been circumcised with a circumcision that is from God himself. But then notice, in the removal of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, I wanna, we don't have time to, to, to delve into this, but it's powerful. What Paul's doing is Paul is, is putting Christ's death in the perspective of cutting off the flesh so that it is, a, it is a bloody, violent representation of what happens to Christ in his atoning work. Okay? So it's not Christ's circumcision of us made without hands, although that's possible. It is, in a sense, the, 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 the bloody immolation of the Son of God on our behalf. So the circumcision of Christ. And so... Paul says, what's happened in us is a circumcision that comes from heaven, as it were, and it comes to us because of what Christ has done for us in his atoning work. Then notice verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him. Now, I just want to say there's nothing in the text that actually equates circumcision with baptism. Okay? There's nothing that actually says, so baptism is now circumcision. It actually says, you were circumcised, but with a circumcision made without hands, through the circumcision of Christ, and now, by Christ's death, you've been buried with him in baptism. Now, here's, here's the, the key phrase. You've been raised up with him through faith. Through faith. So who should be buried with Christ in baptism and raised up out of the water in baptism? Those who have faith. Th through faith. Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And just in case we, we, we miss the significance, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he baptized you. No, he raised you. He gave you life. And so once again, baptism is not equated with circumcision. Spiritual circumcision, in a sense, replaces physical circumcision. Right? You, you see it in the text, right? Spiritual circumcision is what replaces 
physical circumcision and it is faith that unites us to Christ and it is baptism that typifies that union. Right? So again, contrary to being an airtight text, um, it is not. Okay, we're get, we got two more to go and we're almost done and I'll do this one really fast. So turn over to Acts chapter 16 because this is one of the probably one of the most common appeals to infant baptism and it is this household baptism okay in fact many pedo baptists will say really what we're, what we're talking about is not infant baptism per se what we're talking about is household baptism right so um, so Joe Blow becomes a Christian and he's baptized and now because he identifies as a Christian now his whole household identifies as a Christian and his whole household is now baptized okay by implication his infants now this comes to us from <clears throat> a few passages but Acts 16 is the big one all right so go ahead and turn there and look at um, verse 20, uh, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I'd say the guards were also listening too, right? And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open. Everyone's chains were fastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do yourself no harm, for we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, just stop right there. You, you can see why this might be a compelling argument to some, but I would actually say that 31 proves too much. What do I mean by that? It doesn't say believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household will belong to the covenant. What does it say about his household? They'll be saved. Verse 32, they spoke the word of him, of the Lord to him together with, with all those who are in the house. So who in the house are listening to the word? Well, everybody in the house. But what's everybody in the house doing? listening to the word of the Lord. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his. They go, hot dog, we gotcha. We gotcha right there. Baptized all of them. Are you telling me that there were no babies in that house? <laughs> you see the argument, right? And I'd go, yeah, babies and, and dogs and cats and servants and grandmas and grandpas but that's beside the point right now he brought them into his house set food before them now here it is and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household so who were baptized those who were in his household 
Who believed? Those who were in his household. Okay. So, in other words, there is, there is nothing that is so compelling about he was baptized, he and his, or he and his household, that's going to make me say, so what that meant was is that every single person in that household was baptized because the qualification is he was baptized with his household as they, the household, believed in God. In other words, it was a family conversion. And a family conversion then means family baptism. All right. By the way, if you, if you look at the claims of household texts, you'll see these very same qualifiers over and over again. The history of the church, number eight, does not help covenantal infant baptism. In fact, it hurts it. Who's the first person in church history to actually mention the baptism of infants? Probably the North African church father, Tertullian. Late 200s. Okay? So what that means is that you have 200 years of silence. The Paedo-Baptist is going to say, well, the reason that they don't talk about it is because everybody was doing it. Okay? And we say the reason they didn't talk about it is because they weren't doing it. Right? And what I want to say is that the historical argument itself is not the most important thing, but it is an important thing. And we don't have time to go into the history. I would just say that even um, there, there are a number of books that actually demonstrate that there's, that there's no evidence, even in some of the earliest Christian documents like the Didache, no evidence that children were being baptized, the children of believers. And in fact, Kurt Aland did the early church baptize infants. Kurt Aland was, uh, I believe, is Lutheran was Lutheran, Professor Standard and, and Lao baptism in the early church, the consistent testimony is that this was not practiced. So when the practice emerges, this is important, it is emerging right, as a sacramental antidote to original sin. Okay. It is emerging about the same time that the communion service is being pictured as a sacrifice. And that ministers and pastors are now becoming priests. Okay? So, the idea of, of baptizing infants is often put within the perspective of original sin, not put in the perspective of continuity with the Abrahamic covenant. At the time of the Reformation, Zwingli is the first one, to, in a sense, to propose uh, baptism as a replacement for circumcision. But the, 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 the history of the church just simply doesn't support it. So in conclusion, 
we consider covenantal infant baptism position, and we would say, first, it overemphasizes the continuity of the covenants. Secondly, it overemphasizes the continuity of the signs of the covenant. Third, it fails to see the typological significance of seed. Fourth, it fails to see the discontinuity that exists between the physical national people and the remnant. And, and five, there's a fundamental lack of sound exegesis of the proof texts for infant baptism. So too much inference and not enough exegesis. And so let me just conclude by simply saying this. You do understand that the reason why we take the position that we take is because of our commitment to sola scriptura. Tradition is not enough for us. If we cannot justify it in the Bible, we do not practice it. What can we justify in the Bible? That people hear the word, people believe the word, and then people profess that faith in baptism. That is what is absolutely clear again and again and again. And so, you know we have to conclude like this. If you profess to be a believer in Jesus and you have not been baptized as a believer by immersion, you've not been baptized. I know. You, you don't... You say, you don't end a sermon by, like, insulting people. <laughs> We're not talking about rebaptizing. We're simply talking about baptizing. So when we have people that come and want to become members, and they say, well, I was baptized as a baby, as a Methodist, or I was baptized as a baby, as a Presbyterian or a Catholic or whatever, we simply say, in love, you've not been baptized. You need to be baptized. And so if you profess to be a follower of Jesus, you need to profess that faith by getting into water and being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as a believer. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for, first of all, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the gospel which saves and sanctifies. And Father, we also thank you that, that when you invade our lives, you, you transform us, you change us. And so we pray that as parents, we would eagerly evangelize our children. Father, we pray that we would see them as, as, as those who need to believe in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that for our neighbors, for our co-workers, that we would be men and women who press upon people, even as Paul did, the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Thank you, Father, for this glorious gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.